Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific Friday morning show for you. Week one of the BC election campaign. We've got terrific coverage and analysis for you. Pleased to welcome to the show right now, leader of the BC Green Party, Sonia Furstenau. Thank you very much for coming on. Sonia Furstenau. Do we got her? There we go. I'm oh, there we go. Here. Sorry, unmuted. <laughs> okay, that's. thank you very much for coming on. Uh, so much to talk about because, uh, John Horgan in this campaign seems to be attacking you guys almost on a daily basis here now, almost blaming you guys for the election call. Uh, he has said that uh, the Green Party was being uncooperative in the, in the deal that you guys signed. And this is what has potentially triggered this election, according to him. How do you respond to that? Because it's almost like every day he's pointing the finger at the Green Party now for causing this election. Yeah, it's, it's nonsense. This election was entirely John Horgan's decision. I met with him a week ago today, actually, presented him with a letter which is public and available for everybody to see uh, about our commitment to continue with delivering the three and a half years of stable government that has been delivered to BC and to c- adhering to both the confidence and supply agreement and the legislation yeah. on fixed date elections. This was Horgan's decision entirely. He did it because he wants to do a power grab and he wants to have a legislature where he is less accountable, where it is less collaborative, where he has complete control. And I think British Columbians should be concerned about somebody who thinks that absolute power is better than the kind of government governance that has delivered really good outcomes for this province. Yeah, he said again yesterday, repeated the promise of a $10 a day childcare plan in British Columbia. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it's the same promise from the last election. And he was asked, how come you haven't delivered on this? And once again, he pointed the finger at you and the Green Party. Have, have a quick listen to this. Here's Horgan yesterday. We took a step back, of course, because the Green Party would not support the $10 a day plan. Okay, so he says it's your fault. How do you respond? It's, again, I said this yesterday. He needs to stop rewriting history. Um, as people will, will, may remember from 2017, our plan was actually uh, free early childhood education. And what I've worked on with Katrina Chen from the very beginning, in a very collaborative, very excellent working relationship that I've had with her, is how to ensure that we move forward as quickly as possible with childcare but that we also ensure that it is high quality, that it includes early childhood education. And ultimately, what I've been pushing for from the very beginning is that we move early childhood education into the public school system so that it is available and accessible to every child in BC. Early childhood education is absolutely demonstrated to have an impact on a child's life for their whole life, a positive impact. And this is what evidence shows us, and this is what I have been working right. on hard. It is, it is disingenuous for him to go back and try to rewrite history at this point right. when it is on the record over and over again that the collaborative relationship on childcare has been one of the hallmarks of the success of the Confidence and Supply Agreement. 
Right, right. As someone who has followed the, this government closely over the last three years, every time I hear Horgan make this argument that somehow it's the Green Party's fault that he has triggered this snap election, I mean, I, I, just, I just shake my head. But I watch it every day. I wonder for the general public out there when they hear this, when they hear this from Horgan, that it's your fault that, that British Columbians are going to the polls right now. Is that a, is that a strategy that you, your concern could work for him? Or how do you fight back against that? Well, we have been fighting back by putting out facts and evidence and truth. And I think that that's what people should be looking for in an election, is who's telling the truth. Because if you have somebody who's willing to bend the truth, to make up stories, to not tell what is actually the reality, then you should have really big question marks about giving that person power and more power. And I I think that that this this is what this election is shaping up to be is who can you trust? Who's telling you the truth? Why did Horgan go for an election? Because the NDP were high in the polls, mainly because of the incredible work of Dr. Bonnie Henry, of Adrian Dix, in guiding us through a pandemic in, in, in this steady, calm way that they have. Also, the incredible collaboration in the BC legislature across all three parties, where we all recognized that in a global pandemic, you rise above partisanship until this Monday. And John Hargan decided he was no longer interested in rising above partisanship in order to serve the people of BC. He was interested in one thing and one thing only, and that was a power grab for his party. And that is an astonishing thing to do when we have overlapping health crises. And he needs to stop trying to blame this on anybody take responsibility, be accountable for his actions and his decisions, and start to try to present to British Columbians what he has on offer, which is what we are going to be doing. We have uh, candidate announcements rolling out over the next several days, and we will be putting out our platform, which I think British Columbians will find to be incredibly exciting because we can navigate through this very difficult time that we're in where people are worried about their jobs and their homes and their kids, okay. where teachers are worried. And we can start to make decisions that lead us to a place that feels more safe and secure and stable than the place we're in right now. Okay. Okay. And that is what we are focused on. Okay, speaking to Green Party leader Sonia Furstenau, you mentioned that you're still rolling out candidates. Uh, it, last I checked, there was only two nominated candidates for the party, yourself and Adam Olson, the other Green Party MLA. Uh, do you think that Horgan did this deliberately to, to catch you guys unawares? I mean, you've been the leader of the party for what, like two weeks, maybe? And I'm on I'm on day eleven, Mike. Day eleven. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, is this part of Horgan's? Do you think this was part of Horgan's strategy when he he betrayed you guys in in going against the deal that he signed with you with so much pomp and circumstance that he knew he had a new leader, he had no candidates, uh, and so you go, he goes now and catches you guys unawares. Is that part of the strategy? Absolutely. And if you look at the last several weeks and months, you'll see that the NDP have been rolling out candidates. That this was uh, clearly they were preparing and planning for this. And um, for them to cynically do this just days after they roll out the COVID recovery plan, which I I think it's really important for listeners to hear this. The funding for that plan, the $1.5 billion, was agreed to by everybody in the legislature. This yeah, unanimous, was, unanimous, this, every party. That's right. Yeah. And so this was all three parties coming together and saying, in a time like this, we're going to lean into ensuring that people have what they need. But for the 
NDP to then roll that out and then within days call an election after they've had uh, a very um, supportive and collaborative summer session. A budget was passed. They had an agenda. It was time to move to get people taken care of, to get people back to work, to get small businesses supported, to ensure that young people need find jobs. And and I I think this is really important, Mike. Teachers do not feel safe in their workplace right now. Teachers are employees of the government. And they do not feel safe in their workplace right now. We don't have a minister of health, of education in place. We don't have a minister of health in place. And teachers are saying, I'm worried that if I go to work, my health or the health of my family and loved ones is, is at risk. And, and we're hearing from schools right now that teachers are being laid off. Classes are being folded together. We're getting bigger class sizes right now. And, and th- these kinds of decisions that were made, and now there's nobody to, to respond, be held accountable, I'm, I'm appalled that okay. they've done what do you What do you think of uh, Andrew Weaver, your predecessor, the Green, former Green Party leader in the Globe and Mail this morning, basically endorsing Horgan and the NDP in this election? You know, uh, all I can say to that uh, is I'm, I don't understand how a climate scientist can endorse a government and a premier who chose to give $6 billion in taxpayer subsidies to the fracking industry at a time when we are in a climate emergency, at a time when Western United States is on fire. We were choking on the smoke from those fires for over a week. Uh, I, 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 I can't understand. I am running uh, as leader of this party because we need an alternative in British Columbia, because both of the other parties we're absolutely content to vote in favor of giving $6 billion to the fracking industry. We were the only ones to vote against it. And we will continue to be the voices of reason and yeah. the voices in this province that say we owe to our children a better world. And we you, have to start working on that right now. Do you, are you personally angry about this situation? Because I've, I've covered you now for, th- for three years, and this is the most fired up I've ever heard you. So, like, do you take this personally? I mean, Horgan is a guy you've looked, looked in the eye on many times with this deal, and this, he tears the deal up. I mean, do you take it personally? Are you furious? Are you angry? How do you describe your feelings on it? I, I, you know, on behalf of British Columbians right now, I think none of us really wanted to be in an election. And I, I heard the, the notes in your newscast about, you know, 58% of people saying they didn't want an election right now. Um, the, the fact that government could be in this moment working on the urgent crises that we need to be working on, but instead we're all on the campaign trail. And uh, with mail-in ballots, this, the, the decision and, and the outcome will probably take a couple more weeks after uh, election night. We have put our government into caretaker mode at a time when we're seeing a second wave of COVID-19, when we're seeing unbelievably tragic numbers of people dying from toxic drug supply, when we're seeing kids and teachers worried about their, their school classrooms, when we're seeing small businesses wondering if they're going to make it through this winter, when we have youth unemployment and women unemployed at rates that, that are devastating to our society when okay. we have a homelessness crisis. Like, the, Mike, the, there was no shortage of things to work on. That's why I gave the letter to John Horgan last week to say, let's lean into this. I said to him, B 
be bold, be courageous, be the leader that BC needs right now. He chose not to be, and so I am, I am presenting an alternative to the kind of okay. leadership that makes these decisions. All right, welcome back to the show. My guest is Sonia Firstenau, leader of the BC Green Party. Your calls to her 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Ed in Vancouver. Hi, Ed. Hi, Mike. Um, I agree with pretty well everything that Sonia is saying, but my concern is if the election arrives and the Green Party has the chance to be the kingmaker again, are they going to put their their votes behind the NDP Mm -hmm. party, or are they going to put them behind the Liberals? Because talk is cheap. If the Liberals are willing to meet many of your requirements to get the vote. Okay, okay, good good question. Okay, good, good question, Sonia. First to know, what if there's another minority? Would you back the NDP again? Yeah, Ed, it's a it's a great question, and 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 I think number one, we're focusing on the campaign first and foremost. But of course, after the election happens, and and we will see what the outcome is, uh, we can look at a wide range of options, and we can look to other countries. Minority governments are very common around the world, and there are a, a wide range of potential arrangements that can come out of that. What I will be focused on, absolutely is how do we ensure that whatever arrangement comes out after this election, it puts people, health and safety, uh, reviving our economy so that people are at the center of that economy, uh, ensuring that we are building a future that is safer and more secure, and, and really recognizing what we owe to children in education, early childhood okay. education. So it's about the outcome that we need to give to the people of BC, and that's how we will determine uh, how this plays out. There's no reason it has to be the same as last time. Let me play this for you. This is John Horgan in conversation this morning with Global News reporter Nitu Garcha, and they they touched on this topic. Have a listen. And and if that's the case, we'll work through it. We've demonstrated that we can do that. I'm asking British Columbians, which is never a bad idea. Why is an election the answer? Because we've had uh, disruptions through the summer, disagreements that have taken us off track. Uh, The leader of the Green Party suggested that she may not vote for the budget in February. So do we want to to carry on to February and then find ourselves in an election? Or do we want to now, in September, when we have uh, the virus contained better than most provinces in the country, ask British Columbians a very simple question. Where do you want to go and who do you want to lead you? Okay, as Horgan there this morning saying that you were prepared to vote against the NDP's budget mm-hmm. in the spring. That would go against the deal, too. Is that true? Yeah, I, I, again, in the meeting that I had with Horgan last week, I made it clear that we were committed to working with them and co- collaborating. Uh, we put a list of uh, ideas together, and, and we were absolutely committed. So I, I really call on him to be honest with the people of British Columbia. Take responsibility. Own it. You called this election. You want people to make this decision. Own that decision. Be a responsible person. And then let's have a debate about who has a vision for this province and where we can take it. I look forward to that in the coming weeks. I look forward to really focusing on the future of this province and what we have to offer. And I think people will be very excited to see that they have an option in B.C., not of the old style of politics, not of the old party games and partisanship, but of, of a party 
that is here to serve and protect the people of British Columbia. That is why I got into politics. That is why I ran for leader. And that is my commitment in this election and going forward. I serve the people of BC. Thank you for coming on this morning. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks, Mike. Talk to you soon. Uh All right, welcome back. Let's talk about ICBC now. Lots of people out there have seen their ICBC bills go up. We've got the financial dumpster fire over at ICBC. They have lost billions of dollars over the last few years. Will ICBC become an issue in this election campaign? Now, have a listen to this. This is BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. Now, this is a little bit before the election was called. Listen closely to what he says here about ICBC and whether that monopoly that ICBC has on basic auto insurance should continue in British Columbia. Here's Wilkinson. This is an ICBC invoice for $8,040 which is after a young person had a single accident and their bill went up from $3,700 to $8,000. We can't carry on like this. Let's get choice in auto insurance. Let's give consumers and drivers the chance to pick the coverage they want so that they don't get a bill for $8,000. Okay, choice in auto insurance. That's what the Liberal leader says there. He needs to be pinned down on this, on precisely exactly what a Liberal government do here would do here with the Auto Insurance Crown Corporation in, in British Columbia. Let's talk about this now, because I think it's, a, it's a, an important issue going forward. Got a great panel for you. Aaron Sutherland is here. He's the Vice President of the Insurance Bureau of Canada. They represent the private insurance companies in the country. Aaron, thanks for coming on again. Thanks so much for having me today. Okay, I appreciate it a lot. Also on the line is Annette Toth. She is the vice president of the Move Up Union. That's the union that represents workers at ICBC. Annette, thank you for being here once again. Hey, Mike. Good morning. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning, guys. Annette, let me go to you first. When you hear the liberal leader there say, is it time, it's time to give drivers a choice in auto insurance? How do you react to that? What goes through your mind? Well, I, thanks, Mike. And it's, uh, I, it kind of makes me chuckle because the reality is, that what he's talking about is actually the choice is whether or not they can have a reduction in rates with the private uh, public insurance that's going to happen uh, as we transition into uh, the enhanced care model that will happen next year, which does take time, by the way. You can't just turn a switch to do that. But the other one is that really what he's actually wanting you to choose is the opportunity for high profits going to uh, shareholders and huge bonuses to CEOs of big insurance companies. These are multinationals uh, here in Canada, but are also, you know, some of them have, are offshore uh, companies and what have you. So it, it's interesting that he wants to line the pockets of big insurance companies. But if you gave drivers an option to purchase private auto insurance, and they wouldn't that allow them to shop and compare with the rates they get from ICBC? And if ICBC is, is so great, uh, why can't they just compete against private companies? Well, it, and you know that's been the uh, the IBC's argument, uh, but really it isn't an argument because again, uh, you know these insurance companies they aren't uh, charities; these are uh, multinational profit making, profit driven uh, companies. And they are not going to drive down rates. Uh, anybody uh, wants to know about that, just look at what's happening in condo insurance. That's private insurance companies. They're driving up your rates. They are certainly not coming in to British Columbia to say, hey, we'll be the savior and bring your rates down. It's just not happening. And okay. we shouldn't be bamboozled by the word choice. Okay, Aaron Sutherland, how do you respond to that? 
Well, Mike, you know, I'm, I'm more inclined uh, on your view here. I would really like to know and better understand what Wilkinson means when he says choice. Yeah. Uh, and while Annette is using a lot of scare tactics, I don't really understand why this is such a controversial position. Uh, because I believe British Columbians should be able to shop around, just like they do in every other aspect of their life. Uh, they should be able to shop around for their car insurance. And if ICBC is the best game in town in that scenario, so yeah. be it, and nothing changes. But if they're not, people should be able to shop around and start to find savings, because that's what this is all about. How do we start working in the best interest of drivers in this province, not in the best interest of ICBC and its union? How do we start fixing the affordability problem we have here? Because it's clear year after year after year, ICBC has failed to do so. We pay more for car insurance than anyone else in this country. And it's time we looked at all the options. And one of those has to be seeing if another company can come in here and sell the same thing for Okay, Okay, Annette Toth, you represent the workers there at ICBC. He says British Columbians are paying the most expensive auto insurance in the country. Is that true? No, absolutely not. In fact, but you don't have to take my word for it. It's the Consumer Price Index shows that that's the case. Uh, In fact, uh, where there's private insurance, uh, it's actually gone up the most. So I can tell you over the last 10 years, Alberta has seen, on average, a 171% rate increase. In Ontario, it's been a 111% increase. In Nova Scotia, it's been an eight, almost an 87% increase in rates. But the most affordable locations are where there's public insurance. And yeah, absolutely, our rates have gone up. I'm not going to dispute that. We all know it has. But there's a reason. And part of that reason is because the BC Liberals, when they were in power, took $1.2 billion out of ICBC and put yeah. it into their general revenue, which affected the fact that that money had to come from somewhere. And guess what? It was those that are buying car insurance at ICBC yeah. that had to pay more. Yeah, but, BC, I, but ICBC... And, oh, sorry, Mike, hang on. BC, yeah. Saskatchewan, and Manitoba are the lowest rates because they're public insurance because they aren't profit-driven, they're about making sure people get looked after. That's okay. the difference. Okay, I would just point out, like, I'm not going to defend the Liberals for taking money out of ICBC. You know, I, I've keel-hauled them before over that, and they should not have done it. But, you know, when you mentioned they took $1.2 billion out of ICBC, ICBC's lost, I think, what, $3 billion over the last few years? So even if, even if the Liberals had not taken out that money, they'd still be bleeding red ink, wouldn't they? Well, for sure. And, and yeah. why is that? Because the, the issue is that the B.C. Liberals, when they were in power, had a report that said changes had to happen at, at how to make sure ICBC wasn't in the red. And they completely buried the report. They redacted okay. sections, tore the pages out, and then just let things slide instead of dealing with the problem. Right now, the problem is being dealt with. And I guess okay. we can choose to have the problem dealt with or go back to the way things were and just let things get worse and worse. Okay, I think for consumers out there, for drivers out there, go back to Aaron Sutherland. Most people are just thinking bottom line. If they're looking at their ICBC bill, they see it going up. They just say, There's got to, is there a better way? Can I get a better deal? So Aaron Sutherland, when you hear Annette say that uh, the cheapest car insurance in the, in the country are provinces like British Columbia that have public auto insurance, I mean, how do you respond to that? Well, look, Mike, I would go back to something this government has said, is that you simply cannot trust ICBC. We are so, our rates are supposed to be frozen this year. My rates just went up. I know Janet Brown, your colleague, Mike, her rates just went up. Uh, we have heard year after year ICBC promising us 
that this, you know, each time they introduce a new set of reforms, our rates will go down. And yet that fails to be the case year after year after year. If we want to start holding ICBC to account, if we want to start making sure we are getting the most affordable car insurance possible, we need to give drivers the option to see if they can buy it from some other company who can sell yeah. them the same thing for less. And if but, they can, great, they'll start saving money. And if they can't, then ICBC always was the best game in town. Uh, and I don't understand why that is such a controversial okay, let me, position. Let me, ask you, let me ask you this, Aaron. This is one of the most common criticisms against this idea of just let ICBC compete against the private sector is, is the fear that uh, the private sector would just cream off all of the most profitable drivers, the lowest risk drivers, the older drivers with safe driving records, insure them, and then sort of leave what's left over to the insurer of last resort, which would be ICBC. So the younger drivers, the drivers with bad driving records, the riskier drivers that are going to get in accidents. How do you prevent that from happening if you allowed competition? Yeah, that's a good point, because we should absolutely not allow that. We should do what they do in other provinces, which is the majority of this country, where drivers have a choice. And it's if you're going to sell car insurance, if you're a company that's going to sell car insurance, you have to sell it to everyone. And the government says that if you, you know, start selling and you get 10% market share, you must, by law, insure 10% of the high-risk drivers out there. It helps create a level playing field between all insurance companies. And if we're going to open okay. ICBC to competition, that's how we should do it here as okay. well. Annette, that, Toth, you, Annette Toth, real quickly, how do you respond to that? Well, uh, that's really easy for Aaron to say, but I, you know, um, the reality is is that they'll all compete for the uh, high risk drivers and charge them exorbitantly higher rates. Uh, you know, the quote, the the clip that you played um, about um, Mr. Wilkinson saying, "Oh, rates went up when this young driver had an accident." Well, you think eight thousand is bad? Imagine in Ontario where you're going to pay ten and twelve and fifteen thousand dollars, and guess what? The wow. competition will charge you twenty thousand dollars. And so it isn't choice. It's about line. Let's be really clear. These are big multinational insurance companies that want to get into our pockets and drive up costs and have fill pro- profits for shareholders and big CEO bonuses. This is not okay. in best interest of British Columbians. If it was, they would have all the uh, business in optional insurance. They don't. They already cream off the absolute best and easiest drivers to insure, and that's why they want in. They don't want to take the worst drivers. They want to take the lowest risk drivers. All right, welcome back to the show. As we continue talking about ICBC, should ICBC compete against private auto insurance companies? Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson has said drivers deserve choice in auto insurance, I think this is going to emerge as a campaign issue here in the days ahead. My guest, Darren Sutherland, Annette Toth, your calls to them. Let's go right to your phone calls. Mike in Surrey. Hey, Mike. Hey, uh, Mike. Uh, you know, I was one of those guys last year that uh, I went all in with ICBC because their rates were actually better than the private insurers for a guy my age with my, uh, with my driving record. I show up uh, this year to renew my insurance, thinking it'll be the same or maybe a bit less because, by God, we've, we've been driving another year uh, safer, and, of course, we've got the pandemic. And my insurance went up $150 because of third-party liability. I was absolutely huh. choked. So I would love to be one of those guys that's creamed off the top by the <laughs> private insurers that will at least respect my record and give me a rate that uh, is, uh, doesn't, doesn't allow me to okay. or doesn't force me 
to subsidize the bad guys. Okay, let me go to Annette Toth on that. Annette, I've heard this a lot from people that they've got a safe driving record and their ICBC bill is going up anyway. Why is that happening? Yeah, you know, insurance is kind of a funny thing because it's, it's quite complex. But just keep in mind that not everybody's rates went up. In fact, a lot of people went down a lot uh, last year. Uh, I had many people uh, tell me, just anecdotally, didn't even uh, know that they had done this, but then told me afterwards that they went in, got a rate quote, found out that it was so much cheaper that they canceled their plates and got new insurance because it was going to be so much uh Cheaper. I know uh, one woman in her early 30s uh, who went down $500 for the year. It was worth her uh, counseling and starting a new policy. But, you know, if what I would say to that caller is that if, in fact, uh, it was going to be cheaper, uh, insurance brokers do quote for uh, uh, private insurance in, in optional, which includes the additional uh, excess third-party liability okay. coverage. And that would... If they they were probably looked at it and went actually it'd be way more money because okay, brokers Aaron didn't look at that. Aaron Sutherland, what do you say? Honestly, Mike, I just think it's another example that you can't trust ICBC. They have told us year after year prices are going to go down, and they've done nothing but the opposite. They're telling us they're going to solve this again next year after the election. Again, I think the best way we can solve this over the long term is give drivers that choice. It shouldn't be a controversial statement. If ICBC is the best game in town, great. You can stick with them. But if they're not, you can take your business elsewhere and finally start to see savings in this province in auto insurance. We've got a lot of people hurting out there during this pandemic. We need to find a way to get money back into their pocket. Looking outside of ICBC's monopoly uh, is a good way to start. Okay, Terry in New West. Hi, Terry. Hey, how are you guys doing? I like your show, by the way. Thank you. Um, okay, there was a reason why ICBC was created by Dave Barrett and the NDP government. It was because... They've discovered that the insurance companies were basically um, charging everybody all the same rate. There was no competition. There's supposed to be competition wow. in private enterprise. So that was the reason for ICBC to be created. Now, uh, you know, I don't know. Perhaps there should be competition. You know, people should have the choice perhaps of ICBC or private insurance. But I would, as a government, Make sure that there's actual competition with free enterprise uh, car insurance companies, for sure. Yeah, I mean, we don't want collusion between companies. Let me go, let me go back to Aaron Sutherland on that. And, and Aaron, you know, how, how do you respond to that? How do you prevent collusion among these companies to make sure people there is competition and people do get the best deal? And, and I know that you wanted to respond to something that Nett said earlier that, yeah, some people have got an $8,000 insurance bill here in British Columbia, which is pretty shocking, but in other provinces it could be up to 20000 Your thoughts? I, yeah, Mike, I don't even know how to respond to that because if people were paying $20,000 on average in other provinces, I could guarantee you it would be a massive election issue elsewhere as well. Yet we never hear about it to the same degree that we hear about it in BC under ICBC's monopoly. ICBC's average price is $1,900. That's what they tell us. When you look at the same numbers in Ontario put out by their government, in Alberta put out by their government regulator, it's far, far higher in British Columbia than anywhere else. And as for how do we get a more competitive auto insurance market, yeah. uh, as your last caller mentioned, again, we need to create the conditions so other companies can come here. That really just means we need to give them the data they need, the data ICBC uses to price our products, make that open, make that publicly available like it is elsewhere, give them the tools they need to compete, let okay. them compete with ICBC. We don't have to get rid of ICBC. So if you like ICBC, if you think they give you the best protection, stick with them. If you don't, you can take your money elsewhere, start to find those okay. savings. Again, it shouldn't be controversial. 
This should be common sense. Squeeze in one. Shop squeeze around in, for everything else in your life. Squeeze in one more call. Dave and Mission. Dave, you got to go quick though. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. Um, couple things. Uh, Just give me ICBC, one thing. Uh, yeah. One I, thing. Okay. Well, ICBC also uh, took money out of. Uh, uh, pardon me, NDP took money out of ICBC, and ICBC pays huge compensation and bonuses to their executives also. So okay, let me, get a net, let me get a net toss view on that. Are the, what are, what's going on with bonuses at ICBC? you got 30 seconds to respond to that. Yeah, you know what, you're going to have to ask ICBC about that. My members don't get bonuses, so I can't <laughs> what about, about What about that, the executives over there? Pardon me? What about the executives? I have no idea. They don't okay, talk to right. me about their wages and their. But I don't. Okay, Aaron, do you know real quick? Is, my understanding is they've got rid of those. Certainly not to the yeah. tune of multi millions of dollars like you see in big insurance companies. I think the CEO at Intact got about a twelve million dollar bonus. Okay, guys, we are out of time. Sadly, uh, real fast, Aaron, if you want to say something quick. I was going to say other companies make money. ICBC's lost three point eight billion. Okay. Uh, they should be no one getting any bonuses anywhere at ICBC for those guys. Thank you. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the COVID-19 pandemic now, and especially how it's impacted one of Vancouver's most vulnerable communities, and that's residents of the downtown east side. This is the poorest neighborhood in Canada. Lots of people living in close proximity, many with compromised immune systems because of poverty, illness, widespread drug addiction. Now, you would think... This is a community that'd be wide open to COVID-19 to become, uh, to be extremely harmful. Uh, seems like they sort of dodged it to a great degree through this uh, pandemic, but some new evidence emerging that maybe COVID-19 is more common in this community than we think. My guest is Dr. Brian Conway, medical director of the Vancouver Infectious Diseases Center. They do very important work in this community. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hi. Thanks for having me back. Hello, good morning. Yeah, it's nice to talk to you again. I, I remember any time I've been through the, the neighborhood there, uh, you, you're, I'm always struck by the number of people on the, on the sidewalks, people in close proximity. And I remember at the start of the pandemic, there was a lot of concern that the downtown east side in particular looked very, very vulnerable to this virus. What have we found out? Because I know you guys have been doing testing down there, right? Well, not many of them had access to the COVID test as it was rolled out towards the beginning of the pandemic and up to the present time. But now that we have antibody testing available, we can go back and do some blood tests and figure out how many may have been exposed at some time since March. And it looks as if the neighborhood did dodge the pandemic to some extent, but clearly not completely. Okay, testing for antibodies, could you just explain what that means? Like if you've got antibodies in your system, that does that prove that you had COVID-19? Absolutely. The antibody yeah. test is a test that doesn't show you that you are currently infected, though you right. may be, but it tells us that at some point you were exposed to COVID and you developed a, an immune response to it. Your body reacted to it, and that's what we're measuring. It tells us the history of COVID-19 in an individual or in a neighborhood. Right. And I know that the center where you work had done some extensive testing in the past for things like HIV, um, hepatitis, that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, with pop-up C, clinics. Yeah. yeah, 75% of them have hepatitis C. So what we did is we set up 
pop-up clinics several years ago. So we go to shelters, places where people seek emergency services, food and the like, and we offer them point-of-care testing for HIV and hepatitis C. We find out who has hepatitis C, and with the new treatments that are just pills that work 95% of the time, it was really a good opportunity to engage the community in the health care that they deserve and cure their hepatitis C. So the COVID antibody testing was done using the same model that is now allowed with the current phase of reopening. We went yeah. to places that catered to the more transient populations in the neighborhood, reasoning that if COVID had penetrated the downtown east side, that is how it would have gotten in from people released from incarceration, people that move around a lot. And we found up to 10 individuals so far that seem to carry the antibodies to COVID-19. So they were infected at some point since the spring. Okay, 10 out of how many did you test? Well, this is this is where we need to be a bit careful. So this is right. not a representative sample of the entire neighborhood. This is the highest risk population. So we tested over 150 so far, but it would be incorrect to conclude that that finding that we're, that we're sort of seeing up till now will apply to the whole neighborhood. What we can conclude is that there has been some COVID-19 in the downtown east side, and we need to do a bit more work to understand it fully, who got it, when they got it, and more importantly, how we can prevent more infections going right. forward. Right. Okay. So I take your point that it's not a representative sample, but still like 10, 10 positives out of 150. So by you know, I failed math, but so like seven yeah, and a half, no, seven and a half percent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so I think it, of the, yes, but but it's it really is more important that it's something rather than nothing. Right so now, I think it, it 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 so it didn't miss it. So anyone who says they were completely spared, it's clearly not the case. Okay, yeah. So they did get they did get hit with COVID nineteen to some degree, and. So for people who may have been infected, like if you test someone for antibodies and you discover the antibodies, uh, is it possible that people had COVID-19 in the neighborhood and, and didn't know they had it? Or maybe they thought they, had, they were sick from something else? Well, that's exactly what happened. We went back and interviewed five of these individuals so far, and they all seemed to report that they were withdrawing from drugs, or that's what they interpreted at uh, various times, and sometimes more severely than they would have expected. Now, opioid withdrawal can look like fever, chills, shortness of breath, stomach pain, diarrhea, and these are some of the symptoms we are associating with COVID-19. So it may be that those times they felt they were withdrawing in a more significant manner than they had expected, that that represented a COVID infection. Right. So they may have, um, I guess there's some overlapping symptoms there between COVID and some other some other illnesses and, and challenges people face in the neighborhood. That's exactly right. right. So the yeah. reaction to some of these symptoms is to just go out and use more drugs. We need to sort of hone down on this and develop a strategy that will get people to recognize that this may be COVID and to make yes. sure that they have access to testing right at that time. Okay, speaking of Dr. Brian Conway, Vancouver Infectious Diseases Center, what needs to be done down in that neighborhood? There have been some advocates calling for more vigorous testing and more help and services in, in that community. What do you think needs to be done in, in the downtown east side right now? Well, three or four things. We have an educational component to our program. We need to ensure that that is, is uh, optimized so that the individuals that live in the neighborhood know COVID, they know how it's transmitted, they know when to go get a test and the like. The services that they have had to, to help them over 
the past years up to the time of the COVID pandemic, many of those disappeared. We need to restore that to keep them engaged in care. We need to provide flu shots to them, and we need to design a system where they can get access to testing. Telling someone on the downtown east side to come to the corner of, uh, let's say, uh, Drake and Hornby, where there is a testing center, and stand in line for an hour and wait for a test, that isn't going to work. We have to have more innovative strategies to test them when they need it so that we can trace cases in a very active way going forward. And is this a community, in your opinion, that's particularly vulnerable to spread of the virus? Well, once it gets in there, personal distancing is not really feasible in their day-to-day lives. Hand sanitizer use is not feasible. The hand sanitizing stations that were set up were quickly uh, not operable. So I think we need to uh, really... uh, get on top of of the cases, understand who is getting it, diagnose them quickly to see what type of problem we have and how we need to to intervene. Now that we know that there was COVID and there probably still is COVID on the downtown east side, we need to intervene. Right. Um, Last time I talked to you, we discussed the potential, the search for a vaccine. Uh, Are you still optimistic that we'll, we'll get a vaccine? And when do you think, what's the latest on that? Well, I'm cautiously optimistic. We need to wait through the clinical trials that are currently being done. And if we do the arithmetic here and figure out how long it's going to take to do the clinical trials, how long it's then going to take to distribute the vaccine, I think it would be realistic to think middle of next year we'll have something. Anything quicker than that would be very optimistic. So as we plan going forward, we need to think about living without a vaccine for another nine months, perhaps even 12 Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Let's go out there and be safe. All right, welcome back. What a week it's been here for the first week of the election campaign. The stunning snap election call by Premier John Horgan early in the week. Uh, and then we're off to the races in an unpredictable real uh, a Brit- a British Columbia election, especially with the potential backlash for voters against this whole idea, this entire concept of a snap election right now. In the middle of a pandemic, uh, I invite you and encourage you to check in with me here every day as we cover this election campaign for you. And let's take a little look at some of the opinion polls now coming out and see if anything has changed uh, now that the election has been called. This uh, Horgan and the NDP had a big lead going in. Let's find out if it's uh, standing up so far. My guest is Steve Mossop. He is the president of the Insights West polling company. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi, Steve. Good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. First of all, let's talk a little bit about public attitudes toward this election because you've got an interesting new poll out. You asked the British Columbians, how do they feel about this election call in the first place? Most people oppose it, I am, I bet. Well, exactly right. In fact, when you were talking and speculating that he was going to make the call this week, uh, I immediately thought of the question and we asked it right away, which is, do you, are you in favor or opposed to this decision? We found that 58% of BC residents are opposed including 30% who are strongly opposed. And maybe, no surprise, Mike, but what's interesting is when you dig behind the numbers, a slightly different story emerges. So you look at the NDP voters, people who intend to vote NDP, it's about 35% who are opposed, but it's it's only 7% who are strongly opposed. And the remainder are just mildly opposed. So 7% of supporters are upset. And, and as expected, liberal voters and green voters, you know, it's 75 plus percent who are who are opposed to the election being called early. 
Okay, so 58% opposed to the election overall, but then when you take a look at voting intentions, obviously the Liberal Party supporters, Green Party supporters, they seem to be the most upset by this election call, less so for NDP supporters. So I guess that's, what, good news for Horgan? I mean, it'd be a kind of a good news, bad news. Bad news that so many people are opposed to the election, but if his own people are less opposed to it, is that a good thing for him? I think it's a good thing for him, and I'm sure it was a calculated yeah. risk that he took. Um, and their party, as you know from previous polls that we've released, they, they've been well in the lead, for, especially over the pandemic, and even before that. Um, and it's softened a little bit. So we look at decided voters now. It's 42% for the BCNDP and uh, 29% Liberal. That's a pretty sizable lead, although it's early. And, and you've seen things can happen during election campaigns. Okay, yeah, 13-point lead there for the NDP. So the NDP at 42%, the Liberals in second at 29%. That's a big gap, of course. Now, when did you do the poll? That was just uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. Right, okay, so the day after the election call. Yes. Yeah, okay, so very interesting. Now, does that, does that represent a dip? I mean, that's still a big lead for Horgan and the NDP here, but is that narrowing up a bit? It did narrow a little bit. We, we yeah. polled 47% in June. And that was the height where they, they had super high approval ratings for their handling of the pandemic. And there was other pollsters that were saying that they were the most, Horgan was the most highly rated premier in all of Canada. Yeah. Okay, so 47% back in June. So the NDP down five points there, but still holding a big lead. How does it break down for, in terms of, I mean, did you break it down by age or gender? How, how is Horgan doing? Yeah, break it's it interesting. And this, you know, traditionally you've seen the spots where Horgan has done well or the NDP more likely has done well in the past. And it's among Vancouver Island voters, it's among females, it's among youth. And uh, in June, there was a marked difference in, in the polling. For the first time ever, uh, the NDP was leading in every demographic category. So males, females, all age groups and all regions of the province. And And yeah, you would expect that the island is a little bit uh, stronger support for the NDP. Uh, the interior is a, a little bit less. And males, definitely, there's a, a gender gap there. But um, it, it's unusual when you see a party leading across all segments. Yeah, no, it is really interesting polling numbers. And you know that the NDP, John Horgan, is, and his advisors were looking at very similar numbers in their own polling, I'm sure. And that probably influenced this decision to go now because it looks... It looks very positive for them. I, I'm sure they calculated on a, on a backlash, and I think we're seeing a backlash right now to the early election call, but they may have figured that they had such a big enough lead that they've got a big enough cushion there to sustain any, down, any downturn. I think right? so, and I think you know uh, the number one issue facing the province is still the pandemic. Those numbers have not dipped whatsoever. It's still about 40% who say it's the number one issue. And then you look at other issues, even the opioid crisis polled, only 4% mentioned it as the number one issue. Uh, homelessness, only 4%. So, you know, it's a category that they're doing really well in, and it's not going to go away anytime soon. Um, maybe they're relying on those numbers as well. Okay, speaking to Steve Mossop, he's the president of the Insights West Polling Company. Brand new poll out here in the first week of the election campaign. John Horgan and the NDP still holding a nice lead here. They must be happy to see that. But I don't know. This thing is unpredictable. When, when you take a look, Steve, at the firmness of the support for Horgan, it's always interesting to ask people, okay, you say you support Horgan, but are you firm in your support or are you wavering, possibly might change your vote? What did you find out? 
Well, that's a that's a perfectly uh, valid point, and and there's two ways to look at it. One is the undecided vote. So early on okay. in the campaign, we're seeing eighteen uh, percent who are undecided. So it's it's a manageable number, and that's uh, that's usually a little bit higher in the early stages of a campaign. And then there's the vote intention certainty. So people who have said they're going to they're probably going to or sorry they're going to vote NDP. We have some house certain. And we've got 65% who say that they're certain for NDP, but we also have that same number for the Liberals as well as the Greens and Conservatives. So it's really only about 7% across all parties that say that they might change their mind come election day. And usually we look at, you know, any one of the party loyalists and, and ask, is there a difference in any of the parties? And we're not seeing that at this point. So nobody right. has an advantage over that. Right. So that could be another thing that may have reassured Horgan and his advisors here early on that they've got a big lead and it looks like maybe a lot of their supporters will stick with him, even though some people may not be happy with this election. And obviously a, a majority of British Columbians don't want this election right now. But mm-hmm. maybe there's a for Horgan supporters, they might be willing to vote for him anyway. And where the gap might close, Michael, is is in the undecided. So the 19 or 18% who are undecided right now, uh, they are leaning, half are leaning to the Liberals and half are leaning to the NDP. So it's not split, you know, as, as the uh, voter intention split is. So if, if those people end up going more Liberal, um, they can definitely narrow the gap. And it's a long election campaign, yeah. so things can happen. Let's, let's talk a little bit about some of the, the potential issues in this campaign. And I know you measured public public support on this too. Uh, it seems like the first week of the campaign, there's been a lot of talk and pressure on Horgan for calling the election. I think that's understandable. People want to know, why are you doing this? You're breaking your promise not to call an election. But we t- let's talk about some of the issues, though, that are important to people in this campaign. What did you find out in your polls in, in, term- in terms of the top issues, top of mind issues for voters? Yeah, the top of mind issues, as I said, was 40% are saying it's the number one issue, COVID-19. And that's actually up a little bit from June. So it's not dissipating. The economy and jobs is a distant second place at 15%. And housing prices, which were really number one for about four years, is down now to 14%. Uh, and then there's small, uh, maybe not small, but there are issues that are mentioned by far fewer. So the environment is still up there at 7%, healthcare 5%, homelessness 4%. Opioids at four. Any one of those can blow up as an election issue, as you've, as you've seen in the past. Yeah. Uh, so just because COVID is dominating the headlines doesn't mean any one of those issues can surface and be a tripping point for the NDP or or for the Liberals to, to try a different approach that may engage voters. Steve, some interesting numbers. Thanks for coming on today to talk about it. You bet, Mike. If you have a sec for one more thing, one yes. really interesting point is yes, that please. if you look at the intentions of people to vote in person versus by mail, oh, yes. we see a, a measurable difference where liberal voters are going to show up in person and NDP voters, 15 points more, are going to mail in. So we could be faced on election night with the prospect of an undecided outcome. Wow, because we are going to be counting the in-person votes first on election night. The mail by the the vote by mail votes will not be counted until later. So if election you have, BC, I thought was seeing saying like two to three weeks. It might right, take. right. So if you have a larger percentage of NDP supporters voting by mail, could we get? a result on election night that maybe looks like it's favoring the Liberals, but the NDP potentially catch up once they count those mail-in ballots later. It's almost a USA scenario in our own corner here, isn't it? Yeah, that's fascinating. That's like an interesting wild card in this whole thing. Steve, thank you for coming on. 
Thank you, Mike. All right, welcome back. Let's end the week on a happy note here. It is a new baby orca born to British Columbia's threatened southern resident pod. And let's talk about that now with Kelly Balcom Bartok, Communications Director at the Pacific Whale Watch Association. Hi, Kelly. And good afternoon, and you just made me smile, just thinking that you're right, ending the week on a on a high note. Yeah, we everyone loves these whales. These are iconic animals, and everyone loves them, and everyone wants to see them do well. So this is happy news, another baby here. Okay, Kelly, tell me the good news here. So when was this new whale born, and who is the happy mom here? You bet. Well, I, it's not even 24 hours old. It was seen just yesterday afternoon, just a few miles off the Victoria waterfront, it's a new baby to J41, and so we're kind of excited, uh, you know, that we've got, and J41 is Eclipse, by the way, for those that follow the name, um, but we're real excited that this is the second calf in the Southern Resident community this fall, and uh, the first one born in uh, early September, so yeah, two babies in a month. Okay, I was reading that the birth of this baby orca was actually witnessed by some naturalists and some very lucky whale watchers. What happened there? Absolutely. So uh, Talia and uh, Leah were on their way back uh, from watching some humpbacks on the Orca Spirit Adventures vessel that they are both professional naturalists aboard. And uh, they saw the lone female, and as they approached to sort of just, you know, determine who it was, they witnessed this amazing behavior of of the mother, of the female, uh, who was later identified as J-41, basically uh, dive for a long period of time and surface with a with a baby whale on her rostrum and after oh, several wow. pushes of the baby she started taking breaths or it i can't say he or she it yeah. started taking breaths and they literally witnessed them swim off together and uh and you can the photos show it oh my goodness isn't that awesome now did uh did the experts know that this uh this particular whale was pregnant Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, a research group here in the San Juan Islands, SR3, had done some aerial work earlier this summer and determined that both J35 Tahlequah and J41 are, were pregnant, and there's also one in L-Pod still. Um, and so this was kind of expected. We knew she was an expectant mother, and of course then the news that she's given birth is even more exciting for us on this Friday. Okay, that's pretty awesome. Kelly Balcom Bartok uh, is my guest, Pacific Whale Watch Association. So, Kelly, as you mentioned, that this is the second bundle of joy we're welcoming here in this threatened pod of orcas here because we had the earlier birth of another whale um, to uh, the the mom that people will remember that story uh, of the whale that gave birth to a, a stillborn calf and she carried that that baby around for what was like 17 days 17 days the oh. tour of grief in 2018 yeah i was witness to that and and one of my photographs actually went worldwide i can confidently say that that story of that mother grieving her baby the loss of her infant uh, reached probably a billion people over the world and so of course how much more joy than two years later on in early september to be able to see her bring a a new baby into the world that's alive and well and it's really based on she's looking robust. The, the J-Pod, the Southern residents, have been looking healthy. And while they've been absent of our area this summer, there's lots of bigs and humpbacks, by the way. There's a lot of other whales. But the Southern residents have found that they're, they're off Swiftshire Bank and the Outer Coast and are finding food elsewhere. And uh, this year, at least, it looks like there's a lot of food. 
because the whales are looking healthy, and so this, these two new babies have a real good chance at survival. Okay, that is very encouraging and great to hear. We've just got a minute left here. Of course, these are whales that have gone through some difficult times, a threatened population. Their numbers have been kind of steadily declining over the years. You were mentioning that it looks like they're doing doing better. They focus on Chinook salmon, though, right? And we've heard that the salmon are, were having a bad year. Where are they finding stuff to eat? So they're going elsewhere where the where the salmon are, um, and that's exactly right. They are cor- the, the the presence of the whales and the health of the whales is directly correlated to salmon. Yeah. When there are good years for salmon, there are good years for whales. And this last month, for example, over the summer there were there were no whale southern residents in the area in May, June, or August. And if you look at Albion Fisheries, there was a spike in July and a and a and a real nice presence of JPod the last few weeks. You look at the Albion fisheries and the spike of salmon show up in July and September. So when the fish are there, the whales are there. And so that's kind of what gives us some real hope right now. But they are having to go elsewhere to find it. And that's kind of where they used to be in the southern waters here. And now they aren't as often. They're going to the Swiftshire Bank and to the north end of Vancouver Island and finding food elsewhere. All right. Great news. Great way to end the week. Kelly, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Have a wonderful weekend.